This episode contains descriptions of real violent crimes. For the last few weeks, we've been asking if you've got a burning question you want to ask to a Supreme Court judge. And thanks for your response. Now, we've been down to Burke Street, we've received emails and even had some questions from people who work here. I'd love to hear about gender in the court, from judges to court users. You actually have to pay the fine. How do you feel when your name's in the paper? I've always wondered how judges manage to stay awake. In this episode, we get the answers. I'm Greg Muller. I'm Evan Martin. And this is Gertie's Law. And they shall be heard. And they shall be heard. The whole truth. And nothing but the truth. Nothing, 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 nothing. Nothing but the truth. First up, this question from Dom. Hi, my question is... Considering all the violent murders you see, have you ever wished that you had the death penalty as an option? Thanks. Uh, absolutely, absolutely not. Absolutely not. We started by putting this question to two of the court's most experienced criminal judges. Even though we see horrendous things, and some of the things we see seem quite inexplicable... Principal Judge of the Criminal Division, Justice Hollingworth. To me, deliberately killing another person, other than in self-defence, is utterly wrong. And if it's utterly wrong for one citizen to kill another citizen deliberately, it's equally as wrong for the state to kill another citizen deliberately. As a lot of people know, I spend a lot of time dealing with death penalty cases in Southeast Asia, so I'm implacably opposed to the death penalty. Justice Lex Lazary. If there was a death penalty introduced, which there won't be in Victoria, but if the government brought in the death penalty and this court had to impose it, then I would immediately resign. So no is the answer. I don't think government should kill people. I think it's uh, we prosecute citizens for killing each other. I think the last thing that should happen as a mark of the civilisation of our community is for governments to kill people. And I think I genuinely believe that when a government executes someone, as some governments do, uh, it's pulling the government down to the level of the criminal. And uh, apart from anything else, all the published work in relation to the death penalty demonstrates that it's not a deterrent. So if that's the reason it's being imposed, it doesn't work. But it's just not civilised. It's, I mean that in the genuine sense. It's not civilised for governments to be killing their citizens. Criminal judge, Justice Taylor. No matter how bad someone's behaviour has been that's led them before the courts, there are plenty of options to deal with the punishment, the denunciation and all of the other sentencing factors, including life imprisonment with no parole. The other thing to remember is that no system is infallible and the old legal saying about it's better to let uh, 99 guilty people go free than to convict one innocent person might well be applied to someone who's been executed. Our next question from Robert. My question is, how do you feel when your name's in the paper? Do you worry at all about media coverage? No, no. It sounds sounds sort of egotistical, I suppose, but I've been doing cases that have been in the media now for, I don't know, 25, 30 years, more than that perhaps. So I'm used to it, basically. I I just, I really ignore it. Um, it, To me, it's just part of the job. It doesn't, I don't get a buzz out of it anymore. Um, I think the difference is when your name's in the media because you've been criticised for something. And I've had a bit of that. 
Um, that's less pleasant. I suppose if your name's in the media because you've been criticised in the Court of Appeal, that's less pleasant as well. But it's all part of the process. Justice Hollingworth again. Look, to a certain extent, most judges dread initially seeing their name in the paper, dread it for this reason. The media are in the, in the business of selling news. And we know that the most newsworthy cases are the ones where there's going to be some sense of outrage, outrage at the result, outrage at the sentence. There is no mileage, there's no money to be made in the media publishing a headline which says, another reasonable sentence published. On the contrary, the ones which always tend to get published are the ones that someone perceives is going to provoke discussion, debate, and that's often not in a very favourable light. So to a certain extent, you're always relieved when you survive unscathed. Does that affect, though, what we do? I'd like to think for the most part, no. I think those of us in the higher courts who have security of tenure, who are appointed for life or until statutory senility, which is 70, have the liberty of not facing election. It's not like in America where every five years we've got to put our hands up to be re-elected by the populace. And what that means is that we're able to do our job in accordance with what the law is, and what the requirements of the individual case are, not by thinking, is this going to win votes in the court of public opinion? Which leads us nicely into our next question from Sean. My question is, if a judge is successfully appealed over and over again, are there any consequences for them? Like, do they lose their job? Thanks. We put this one to Chief Justice Anne Ferguson. The simple answer is no, they can't accept in limited circumstances. There's a good reason for that. It's because you want the judges to be independent so that they're not influenced by anyone. You don't want a judge to be making a decision a particular way because they're fearful that if they don't make the decision that way, they'll get the sack. Clearly, you have to have some counterbalance for that. And we've got really good counterbalances. We've got a very robust uh, appeal system so that if a judge um, makes a decision, the parties don't like it, they can appeal to the Court of Appeal and then they might be able to go to the High Court. So that's a really important um, counterbalance and we've got a self-correcting system. If a judge is continually making wrong decisions then I suspect that there would be some other underlying issues as well. Uh, Judges are human, they have tough times in their lives, that can affect their work, there's no doubt about that, I don't think. And we've now got a Judicial Commission of Victoria that is uh, the body that you can make a complaint to about a judge about their conduct or their capacity to do the job. And if that's investigated and it's found that the judge there are grounds for removal of the judge, then a report can be made to uh, the Attorney-General and the Governor, and then it can be laid before both Houses of Parliament, and the judge could be removed that way. That's the only way a judge can be removed. We received the next question from Elise via email. Are victim impact statements actually used in the proceedings at the Supreme Court? They are, but they're not necessarily used for the purpose that the public or the victims might think. The purpose of a victim impact statement is to inform the judge of the effect that this crime has had on the particular victims. 
It's also an opportunity for victims to have their voice publicly heard in open court and to have their pain acknowledged. But that doesn't necessarily translate into a harsher sentence if there are more victim impact statements or greater pain to victims under a more lenient sentence in the case of someone who perhaps doesn't have as many victim impact statements or whose personality was more complex and they weren't perhaps loved as unconditionally, etc. All lives are valuable. And a follow-up question from Elise, also on victim impact statements. Is it to provide the victim with a sense of retribution? That's not meant to be the purpose of it. I think sometimes victims want to express their anger and their pain and so on. And if that's a helpful process, so be it. Justice Taylor again. Victim impact statements are used all the time in the court. And indeed in sentencing people, if there is a victim impact statement, is one of the factors that a judge must take into account in coming to the appropriate sentence for the offender. A victim impact statement uh, can come before the court in a number of ways. It's, It's always in writing. And the person who's written it may choose that it's not read out in court. They may choose to read it out in court themselves, or they may ask the prosecutor to do so. There are times when it's very difficult listening to victim impact statements. They are often incredibly moving. And they're designed so that judges take into account the victim's experience as told by the victim as opposed to an assumption of what it must have been like for the victim. And similarly, they exist so that victims have a role and a voice in the courtroom and that there is a part in the procedure where the judge will listen to them and take their perceptions into account when balancing all of the factors that the judge must come to with respect to the appropriate sentence. But not a not an avenue for retribution? I'm uncomfortable with the word retrib- retribution. The role of the judge is to do is to give a sentence that has a lot of purposes, one of which is just punishment. The ultimate sentence is appropriate to punish the offender. It's also about denouncing behaviour, it's about general deterrence, it's about protection of the community, it's also about rehabilitation of the offender. Retribution is not a word that we use in those multiple sentencing aims. My observation is that it's often very cathartic for victims to read their victim statement, to be in the room with someone who's done harm to them or their family. What their personal experience of that is, whether they feel like it's retribution, I'm not sure, but it's it's not the basis upon which we take those matters into account. And a reminder, there's a longer discussion on victim impact statements and the role they play in the sentencing process in our second episode. In May, we had a Q&A with some judges as part of Court's Open Day. And we received this question from one of the youngest people in court that day. Are cases with child witnesses more complicated? Um, I think the, the simple answer to that is, is yes. Um, and I've had the experience of being involved in a lot of cases involving children. Um, and there are some 
different rules that we use for children who are involved in, in the cases. And on a similar topic, Roxy sent in this question. Hi, I'm curious about the court's approach to young people who have matters uplifted to the Supreme Court and how this differs from adults who may be seen to commit a similar offence. Criminal judge, Justice Champion again. Well, there are many ways in which children can come before this court. Uh, Of course, one might be that they are coming here on appeal from the children's court on a bail application. Um, They might come here as the result of being serious offenders and come before the court charged with ultimately the ultimate serious offence of murder or manslaughter. Or children um, might be before the court as witnesses as a result of seeing things that happen. It doesn't take long to imagine that, of course, children are present in homes when events take place between partners in a home, sometimes extremely confronting and serious events, and the children might be witnesses to a high degree of violence that takes place within the home. So depending on their age, Uh, and their ability to be able to speak and recount events, uh, children may find themselves as witnesses in this court. If children are uh, before the court as witnesses or as accused people, then the court needs to be very conscious of uh, the requirements of having to deal with children. Uh, And uh, the court can be a very confronting place for children to be and to be dealt with, especially if um, you have children of the age of five, six, seven or eight uh, that are asked to give evidence concerning events that have happened between their parents. It's an incredibly confronting environment for them. Young children are treated differently in this court um, when they have their matters uplifted to the court. Depending very much on what the type uh, of matter that it is, for instance if it is uh, a bail application that's being brought from the children's court, then the court does have a protocol in place that attempts to make the proceedings, make the child more comfortable and to allow the court to deal with the case in a more sensitive way. For instance, what the judge might do is ensure that people address the court sitting down. The judge might call the child by his or her first name. The judge might attempt to make sure that the child uh, sits in a different location in the court, out of the dock, perhaps in the company of of the child's parents or supporters. In some instances, uh, I have conducted some of these applications by coming down off the bench and sitting at the bar table to try and modify the proceedings so that it's more comfortable for everybody. Um, You can imagine that in some of the big courts, and I know that we've talked a lot about court four in these podcasts, to hear a bail application for a 14-year-old child sitting in the fourth court is, uh, I think, a very confronting process for a child. Earlier in the season, while we were preparing for our first episode, Greg and I went to Bendigo to speak with Justice Taylor while she was on circuit hearing a murder trial. 
In that trial, there was a child witness being cross-examined, and it was fascinating to see the rules around this. So we asked Justice Taylor this question too. Well, the law takes a great deal of care about how it treats children. It doesn't mean that children cannot be held responsible for their actions, but the immaturity and the cognitive development that, that, uh, or, or lack of development um, that children have is something that uh, the law takes into account. It's incredibly important uh, when a child comes as an accused person before this court that they are well represented, that they understand all of the procedures and there's an extra duty on a judge to ensure that 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 all happens. There are special arrangements made when children are in custody so they're never in custody with adults and it's quite a different procedure. Of course, children come before this court as witnesses as well and again, there are duties on a judge to make sure that a child witness understands the difference between uh, telling the truth and telling lies and uh, understands that the way that children speak is may be different from the way that an adult speaks. And in certain circumstances, we now have uh, what's called an intermediary uh, who is a non-lawyer who assists the court, both the lawyers and, and the judge. Now, intermediaries are experts appointed by the court. They're people with expertise in communication skills. They might be speech pathologists or psychologists, etc. And their task, once they've been appointed by the court, is to go and speak with the child and assess their communication skills. They're not there to discuss the case with them. They're not there to say, what do you remember about what happened on the night? But what they need to do is to assess this person's capacity to comprehend particular types of questions, complex questions, double negatives, questions about time and place and number and so on. And they they do that and then they prepare a report which comes back to the court. And then the court and the practitioners have to get together and agree on what we call ground rules. So if we're going to be hearing evidence from this 12-year-old child who has problems um, dealing with complicated questions about time or number, the intermediary will suggest some ways that questions could be asked, etc. There's a, there's a difference between having a, a witness who's nine and a witness who's 17. Both are children in, in the eyes of the law. But with a very young witness, you have to make sure that they can explain to you the difference between telling a lie and telling the truth and that they understand that they have to tell the truth in the courtroom. And it's also that you have to make sure that questions are asked in a way and words are used that they can understand what it is that they are being asked. Uh, You have to make sure that they keep an eye on them to make sure that they're not distressed or they they don't freeze. You just have to be a bit careful to to make sure that that they can participate fully in the process. And if you have a 17-year-old, now that one 17-year-old may be almost an adult in every sense of the word and other 17 year olds can be very immature and 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 not so the older the child gets the less vigilant you are about certain things but you still have to make sure that their rights are protected and they understand the process and they feel respected in the courtroom this question came in from claudia via email Has there been a case you've been involved with that's really stayed with you over time? This one first to retired criminal judge Betty King, who spent 10 years at the Supreme Court between 2005 and 2015, and five years before that on the county court. 
oh, there's been a number. Yeah, they... I think I have to say the reason... One of the reasons I, I thought I was ready to retire was um, I did the murder of a 13-year-old autistic boy and someone took an axe to his head and chopped large chunks out of it and chopped off fingers as he was trying to protect himself. And I was about halfway through reading it in preparation and I just closed it and said, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. And I don't know why, but a colleague had said to me, the day will come, he said, it'll just hit you like a like being hit with a brick. And he said, and he said, you'll just say, I don't want to do this anymore. And he was right. Chief Justice Anne Ferguson. When I was first sitting in criminal cases, I was preparing for it and I had to read some of the decisions of other judges and I found that quite challenging at times because of the gruesome nature of some of the facts that you would be dealing with. I found that quite difficult. Um, the first, or one of the first cases that I sat on that was a criminal case did stay with me for a while. Um, again, because the facts were pretty terrible, there were no winners. Um, they were really sad circumstances and you certainly felt for all of the people that were involved in that and that did stay with me because it was a normal event in the sense that it could have happened. So that I found that quite challenging. Justice Taylor. Certainly, um, more than one. Um, the thing about criminal law is that you are in the middle of people's lives um, and people's lives by definition at moments of crisis and you see human emotion, human behaviour in all of its forms and there are people who you feel incredibly sorry for, there are people who anger you um, and there are victims that you can't quite stop thinking about, so yes. Before moving to the Court of Appeal, Justice Whelan sat in the criminal division of this court for eight years. Well, look, I say that the cases don't affect us and that we, to some extent, become hardened to them, but I feel as though I carry every murder trial I ever did around with me in the sense that um, I believe I remember them all, even though there were quite a few. Of course, I might, <laughs> I might be wrong about that in that if I've forgotten it, I won't obviously know that I've forgotten it. And some of them in particular, you think about, uh, I you know, when I used to visit the jails, I haven't been out for a while, you'd see, occasionally I'd see people I'd sentenced. Sometimes I'd think about them and think uh, they'll be coming out soon, or they might be coming out soon. Some of them, might, that makes me think, oh, well, perhaps they will live a better life afterwards. Some of them I think uh, it's probably not a good thing for society that they'll be coming out. Um, but you don't know. It's, it's uh, People who've served a sentence for murder have been in jail for a very long time. But, yeah, you think about them. In fact, one chap in particular who did murder someone, but, look, it's not that he had a good reason for it, but it was in circumstances which were less inexplicable and less um, morally indefensible than is sometimes the case. And I was thinking about him and thinking about whether he... Um, might be eligible for parole and one of the other judges just said something to me about the fact that an issue concerning his parole had come up and um, 
Yeah, I was quite surprised because I, I kind of immediately was emotionally back in the situation from many years ago when uh, I heard his trial. So I think, I reckon every really serious case you never completely leave behind. Anyway, that's just part of the, part of the job. And this was another question from Roxy, and one which we came across a lot. I'm also curious about gender in the court, from the judiciary to court users, and how this has changed over time. Um, Well, I can give you a really good example. Someone with a unique perspective on this issue, retired criminal judge Betty King. The first woman appointed to the Supreme Court was in 1996. That's extraordinary because it means that until 1996, there was no woman in the state of Victoria that was capable of sitting as a Supreme Court judge, which is absolute nonsense. It just didn't occur to the powers that be, which were men, that a woman could do that. Since then, rapid change, but it still to me is breathtaking that it took till 1996. Our first woman was appointed magistrate in, I think, the early 80s. She didn't last. Then the first county court judge, female, was appointed. She lasted three years and quit. Because it's not something you can really go into and be the only woman in the building. Doesn't really work. And she just, I think, became desperately lonely and unhappy and left. And it took years before they appointed another woman. So although it's been good progress of late, it was very slow to get there. The person best placed to answer this question is the current Chief Justice, and only the second woman to hold that position, Anne Ferguson. When I first started practising, which was in the early 80s, there were no women as judges, which was actually quite useful if you were writing an opinion. You were talking about the judge just used he. Um, You didn't have to check whether it was a male or a female if you didn't know them. And that's significantly changed so that over the years women have been appointed and we now have 14 female judges in this court out of 45. Still not equal to the number of um, males, but every month I admit lawyers to the profession and the figures are coming through very strongly that the females are about 60% of the new lawyers coming through. So hopefully that'll filter through in the years to come. What about gender when it comes to court users? One of the court users are the barristers and the solicitors that come into the court um, representing clients and that's significantly changed over time even the way that um, you can come to court dressed so there was a time when I first started practicing where women weren't allowed to wear trousers or pants to court and uh, judges might refuse to hear from a barrister if it was a female who was wearing trousers thankfully that's long gone But an example of the change in dress was when I was coming for the court ceremony to be admitted as a a lawyer, 
we got a note from the court about a whole lot of stuff about the procedure, but we also got the dress code. And the dress code for women was that you were to dress in a sombre but not dowdy fashion. So I suppose still is a bit of a rebellion against that. That stayed with me over the years. And you will quite often see me walking around in what are definitely not sombre clothes, but very bright clothes. And that's changed, so that's, that's been a really good thing to see that change. And the profession's changed too, so that um, you now have many more women uh, appearing as solicitors and as barristers uh, before us in the courts. There's one very clear and illustrative way to observe the change in gender diversity here at the Supreme Court. So we're upstairs in the corridor through some of the judges' chambers in the 210 William Street building. Beautiful building. We've had an episode about that. And there's a corridor that is full of the photos of all of the judges that have ever been Supreme Court judges. And they're placed on the walls in, in chronological order of their appointment. So we start with... Uh, what's said to be Mr Justice Barry. He's wearing a long bottomed wig that looks very regal almost, I suppose. The wig matches his sideburns. <laughs> it does. I hadn't noticed that before. I hadn't looked that closely, but you're right. Absolutely right. And then if we move through the corridor, we're passing Mr Justice Fellows and Mr Justice Higginbotham, Mr Justice Kerford, Mr Justice Webb, and we continue on, Mr Justice Beckett, all these names that I've read when I was a law student and more recently as a lawyer and judge. It's really quite eerie. Uh, Mr Justice Schutt, Mr Justice Mann, Mr Justice Lowe, Mr Justice Mr Justice Payne, Mr Justice Little. So we've come to the end of one side of the corridor and if we turn around now and go back the other way, we're now up to Mr Justice Gillard who was appointed in 1962. We've got Mr Justice Stark, Mr Justice Flash, Mr Justice Manhattan, Mr Justice Newton, Mr Justice Puckett, Mr Justice Stephen, Mr Justice Payne, Mr Justice Stone, Mr Justice it takes a while, and these corridors are pretty long, and you have to pass 88 black and white portraits until... So we finished two corridors, and we're now coming to the third corridor. And surprise, surprise, 1996, we come to the first female judge, Justice Barnford. So this wall that we're now in the third corridor for has a little bit more gender diversity at least, and you start to see a few more female photos a bit more regularly. So after Justice Barnford, there were three males appointed, then a female, then a male, then a female. So you do start to see a sprinkling of more female judges along the walls, and that's a trend that I'd certainly like to see happen because I think not just gender diversity but all forms of diversity leads to better decision-making. This next question came from a pretty familiar voice. 
I've always wondered how judges manage to stay awake. Are they secretly playing angry birds behind the screens up there? How do you keep paying attention day after day, week after week, month after month? Karen Percy, ABC News. Oh, that's a great question. No, I haven't used the technique of angry birds. Um, There's lots of techniques because I suspect, again, that we're like people doing any sort of job where there are times in the afternoon, I find around 3.30, quarter to four, that wave of um, tiredness can hit you. Um, But there are techniques, so different judges use different techniques. I'm a great one for the cold water. I find that having a sip of cold water or a couple of sips of cold water sort of helps. Um, Things like moving my feet up and down underneath the bench and if it's really bad, uh, taking a short break for five minutes and going out from the bench and walking behind the the closed doors and coming back in. Justice Betty King. Oh, for me, that was really easy. Um, I type... (laughs) I'm a touch typist, one of my skills I learnt when I was young, and I had a computer set up on the bench, and so I used to just sit there and take notes. I, I didn't Because I didn't have to look at the keyboard, I could still look at the court and keep control of what was going on, but I also took a note of, like almost verbatim note of what was being said. So first of all, it keeps you awake because you're active, but it also embeds the evidence into your brain. So I was not someone, if I said that wasn't what was said, it got to a stage no one disputed that. (laughs) They consider I was as good as a running transcript. (laughs) I'm sure that's a question that lots of people wonder about. The reality is that it's our job to do that, and, and you do. And most of us have spent a great many years before our appointments concentrating and listening at a very high level. And certainly if you've been an advocate, which is still the more traditional route for judges, you have been in courtrooms a good 20 plus years of your life with every sense on high alert, figuring out what's going on. No angry birds that I've ever seen. And uh, one of the pieces of advice I was given when I was a brand new judge was to listen to every matter that you hear as though you're going to give your reasons orally immediately upon it being finished. That's a very, very good way to concentrate the mind on what's being said. Have you noticed any journalists falling asleep? Yes. <laughs> um, yes, I've seen all sorts of people asleep in a courtroom. So maybe maybe their battery ran down and their angry birds wasn't operative. And it's not only judges that have to stay awake. This question came from an audience member at the Courts Open Day earlier this year. Sorry, have you ever had to reprimand a jury because... or a juror because they just don't seem to be paying any attention at all. Principal Judge of the Common Law Division, Justice Dixon. I personally haven't had the experience, but there was a case a couple of years ago that Justice Priest did where one of the jurors was seen to fall asleep and in the end he he discharged the jury and put another jury in that was prepared to stay awake. But (laughs) there are techniques that barristers learn. If, If the judge seems to be nodding off during a particularly boring submission, Often what a barrister would do is just drop a, a law book onto the, onto the bench. So the judge wa- wakes up and then, as I was saying, and you go back and repeat the bit and life goes on. The next question came in on an email from Phil. Now the pretext to the question first, and I quote, 
I assume judges do a good job of sentencing and for this to be misrepresented to the community creates problems. We are left with the ridiculous situation where ordinary people, through their interaction with newspapers, TV, Facebook, have come to believe they know better than judges. I put this to Justice Lazary, and the question is, so why aren't more journalists ever charged with scandalising the court? Well, we've been close to that a few times, but I think the answer is because not many uh, not many journalists do scandalise the court. Um, I mean, if they were, then there'd be a consequence. But most journalists, sounds like I'm sucking up to them, but really most journalists do the best they can to report what they see in court uh, and what happens in court. So it only happens when a journalist decides to take, in a particular case, to take on the judge or to, to be critical of the judge in a way that is scandalous. I've said many times, I have no problem with sentences of mine or anyone else being criticised, so long as the criticisms are reasonably objective and informed. If it's informed criticism, I understand why people want to criticise us. And the pretext of the question refers to the fact that what you get is an article in a newspaper that may be half a column long, the devastating consequences of a crime, and a figure. And to a lot of people, that figure just isn't enough imprisonment because they haven't understood what else is in there. The only way people can be informed, obviously, is to go online and read the judge's reasons. And they don't always make really interesting reading, but they're there. A few people wanted to know whether judges miss wearing wigs. In case you missed it, judges at the Supreme Court no longer wear wigs. This was a decision made by former Chief Justice Marilyn Warren, effective from May 1st, 2016. I don't miss wearing wigs. Chief Justice Anne Ferguson. I think that they had a role to perform in the past, but the time had well and truly come for us to move forward and not to wear wigs in court. There are some who think that wigs should be worn and should still be worn. And basically there are three reasons that are given for that. The first is based on tradition and continuity. I think that tradition has a very important part to play, but it's you look to the tradition to inform the future, you don't look at, to tradition to straightjacket what you do. And if you think about it, there are lots of people whose clothing that they wear for their role has changed over time. So police don't wear the same as they used to, nurses don't. There's so many people that don't wear the same that they did in the past, and I think we're no different to that. We could um, move forward without wearing wigs. The second reason that's given is that it gives you some form of anonymity so that when you leave the court and you take your wig off, you won't be recognised. Again, I think that's a bit overplayed. I don't know of any research that supports that. And whilst the person wearing the wig might feel that it gives them some protection, I'm not sure that in reality it does. And the final reason that's given for wig wearing is that it gives a gravity and a dignity to the court proceedings. I absolutely agree that court proceedings need a level of gravity and dignity because of the serious matters that we're dealing with, but I don't think that you need to get that from the wig. I think you can get it from what you say, how you conduct yourself in court 
and the formality of the proceedings themselves, the way court proceedings are conducted rather than the attire. And it wasn't only controversial for judges. No, it certainly wasn't. And there are still some members of the bar who speak to me and uh, I think they would like to go back to wearing wigs, but there's no intention on my part to um, do that. And finally, direct from the Burke Street Mall. Okay, if a fine um, in your name, okay, you get a fine but they misspelled it, do you actually have to pay the fine? (laughs) Can I tell you, I have no idea. Um, I, we, I suspect the kind of fine that's being talked about is, is, in the, is in the street as opposed to the fines that get... Yes, I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, yep, you still got to pay it. <laughs> I think, I think. <laughs> Check with the police. <laughs> Gertie's Law is brought to you by the Supreme Court of Victoria. If you enjoyed this episode but still want something cleared up, then keep sending in questions to gertie at supcourt.vic.gov.au. We'll try and include them in a later episode this season. And don't forget, we love getting your feedback, so please review and rate if your podcast app allows.